the book of James. Brothers and sisters, let's stand together and and ask for the Lord's blessing in prayer, and then I'll read a portion of chapter 1. Now, Father, we come in, in, in the grace of Christ. We come, O Lord, seeking truth, knowledge, and understanding. We come, O Lord, seeking mercy and strength joy and gladness. We come, Father, seeking wisdom and understanding. And Lord, we pray that as we come to this portion of Your Word, that You would give us understanding into those agitations and difficulties into our in our lives, and that we would be a blessing to You, that we would bring You glory. And Lord, we would prosper and benefit and mature from those things which we endure. Lord, we ask that You add a blessing to Your Word. Give us understanding. Lord, give us a joy that surpasses human understanding so that we stand before You on that day perfect and complete, Christ-like. Lord, because you're, because of Your work that You are doing even right now in our lives, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I want to begin reading at verse 2. And I'm going to read down through verse 18. Now consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith and without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Because like the flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lusts. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among His creatures. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, James has taken it upon himself to write a general epistle to those believers who have been dispersed and spread out over the Roman Empire, primarily because of their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. There's a twofold persecution happening in this circumstance that James is addressing. Number one, the Hebrews who did who have rejected Christ are persecuting their own countrymen for accepting Christ as the promised Messiah, as being the Son of God and the Savior of men. So it's coming from within their own countrymen. And then secondly, there is the political uh, aspect of this uh, among the Roman Empire that is uh, the uh, nature of rejecting and persecuting Jews but primarily even those Christians who have professed 
one and true God over all the other gods. And so they are receiving agitation and persecution from two different aspects of their lives, both their countrymen and the Gentiles, uh, those who are in power. Now James writes and he's concerned that as we face trials and difficulties, we do so in a way that is glorifying to God. He's concerned. He wants to make sure that we who profess to know the living and true God, that we who profess to love God would do, would respond to these agitations and difficulties in a way that is properly glorifying to Him. Now James does this immediately as he opens the letter and he begins to write going straight to the heart of his concern when he tells us that we are to count it all joy when we fall into various trials. Now the the thing that I think might be profitable for us this morning is to make some observations of the text that I've read. Now I want to do this for several reasons. I'm going to mention one. The main reason I want to do this is because I want to aid you and help you in reading your Bibles. I want you to see how observation can lend itself to a very edifying experience with the Word of God. Now notice, I read verse 2 down through verse um, 18. But I want you to notice that there are connecting ideas and themes that are related in the larger context. Notice verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. We see a connection there with what? Between joy and blessedness. Joy and blessedness. Recognizing and understanding that this joy is flows from a covenantal relationship that we have with the Father in His Son, Jesus Christ. Worship. One of the primary things that James was concerned about is when we face difficulties and agitations and hardships, one of the very first things that we will give up is worship. That's why in the book of Hebrews, he said, the writer of Hebrews tells the suffering Hebrew Christians not to forsake the gathering of themselves. That is, when we face these hardships and agitations, these things that bring us to a place of consideration of our souls and hearts, our present and our futures, that we would not withdraw from the means of grace, that we would not withdraw from our covenantal communion with God in the worship and praise and thanksgiving of God, but that we would draw nearer in that experience. James doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to make the connection, beloved, that happiness and joy, this worship, this covenantal communion that we have with God is connected to our God's revelation of Himself, to the means of grace. Where do we go to commune with God? We go to worship primarily. We pray. We read the Word of God. We walk with God by walking in His Word. To walk in the Word of God is to walk with God. That's the picture given to us in the very beginning that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the day. What did they walk with God in? The the wisdom of God. The instruction of God. Notice as well. Notice the emphasis that James places on knowing knowledge. Education, Christian education. Look at verse 2. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Look at verse 3. Knowing James here already approaches the church as if they do know something. It's incumbent upon 
the Christian community to grow in knowledge and understanding. Christian education is vital and important to one's sanctification and to one's ability to bring God glory. You see, brothers and sisters, there are lots of people who say, well, I'm glorifying God, and they're doing so in their own strength, in their own way, and according to their own understanding, and that's not the way to bring glory to God. I read the book, I read chapter 42 of the book of Job. Eliphaz and those men that went to Job thought that they were glorifying God, did they not? When they accused Job of certain sins, and yet we see in the book of Job that God condemns them. He says, You misrepresented me. You had no knowledge of who I was. But he commends Job. He said, But Job knew me. Job got it right. Now he faltered and failed personally, but guess what? His knowledge was good. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, again, this carrying on this theme or what this idea of knowledge and lacking, I lack wisdom. What's wisdom? Wisdom is the application of knowledge. It's knowing something and the ability to put it into practice. Look at verse 6. Let him ask in faith, not with no doubting. Why? Because a doubting man is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Look how the... Look how the um, this section ends. I'm just connecting these dots for you. Look at verse 16. Do not be deceived. Again, a direct connection and correlation to what? Knowledge and understanding. Knowledge and understanding... Brothers and sisters, Christian doctrine, Christian education is vital to our perseverance and our difficulties. Knowing God, knowing what the, these, these revealed purposes of God are, are vital to us being able to exercise perseverance. There are hindrances. There are hindrances, and James points these out. We all have weaknesses. We all bear some infirmities, right? He does mention this. Number one, he says, look, let these, these trials, these, these trials and afflictions that you face, he says, what do they do? They test your faith. Faith produces patience. Let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Knowing that the idea here is that we would be what? Mature Christians. Complete Christians. What's a complete and mature Christian? Well, it's not a perfected Christian. Sinless Christian. But he, he or she is perfected in the scheme of this life, knowing that all things come from God. Knowing that from the hand of a merciful God to those who profess to know Him and to love Him, guess what? Every trial has purpose. And that purpose has great meaning for the life of the one who professes to love God. Look at verse 12. I want to show you how verse 12 completely comports with verses 2 through 4. It says, blessed is the man and endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. This knowledge, this understanding is equated with love of God. Christian education is not separate from the love of God. There's a lot of people that would profess in the hearing of this sermon, they'd say, oh, I love God, but it's okay. I'm ignorant and I don't really care to burden my mind and my heart with all of that stuff. But I'm here to tell you something, brothers and sisters. The Bible says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
This is eternal life, that they may know you, the true and living God, and Jesus Christ, your Son, has been sent into the world. That knowledge is equated with eternal life. He starts off in verse 2 with my brethren and he ends right there in verse 16. He says, Oh, do not be deceived, my brethren, knowing that these infirmities and these weaknesses have a tendency to do a couple of things. Number one, if you are a poor person, the tendency is to think, woe is me. Woe is me. That in your poverty to feel sorry for yourself. That in your poverty to, to kick the, the, the dust and to not look up. But James says this in verse 9, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Let the... Lowly brother, in the midst of the worship of God, give thanks because he has been counted among all the other creatures that have experienced the grace and mercy of God. That he, though he is poor, is rich in God. Do I have to count and recite the scriptures that tell you, brothers and sisters, that that the relationship and truth and the love and God is more precious than gold and silver? Let a man glory, glory in this, that he know God. Glory in something, glory that you know God. And he says the rich man, he faces, he faces also the trials and temptations. He faces the idea that he's somehow personally worthy of such a covenant relationship. And he's to be reminded as he gathers with God's people and worships and gives thanksgiving and praise to God. Guess what? His days are numbered. That death and the end of this world and life is going to come to him just as it comes to every other creature and even the poor man. They glory in this that they both sit at the foot of the cross and will pass away. Providential circumstances, right? Sometimes, listen, when we're born into poverty, poverty wasn't something we chose for ourselves. We're born in that condition. We can be born into riches and yet still face these similar trials and temptations. And we can also, brothers and sisters, be tempted that when we fall into these trials and temptations that we blame God for our difficulty. And James addresses that. He addresses that a weakness that we often do, right? We often want to blame God for our situation. I'm going to speak more about this in a moment, but I just want to mention it now, and that's why he has to address and deal with it. You say, oh, well, we believe in the sovereignty of God. I know. But beloved, in ignorance, you blame God for your sin. God is sovereign. The very fact He is God makes Him sovereign. He can't be sovereign and not be God. You can't be God and not be sovereign. But to accuse God of your own jealousies and hatreds and envies and the like is in ignorance, in error, to blame God and accuse Him of something He's not guilty of. Not only are we double-minded when we don't think God will ever even answer our prayers, but we are wrong and suffer great error when we accuse God of not being merciful, kind, and loving toward us in Christ. That's why James ends this section right here in verse 16 and following. says, My beloved brethren, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning of His own 
will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Notice the word of truth and knowledge, the correlation there, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, let's begin to make sense of this passage of Scripture, not going to address all of it in that detail, but want you to see and learn to make these observations when you read the text. That is, there are devices that our writers employ to help us understand the text and to help us memorize it. To help us understand it, to help us see it, so that we can what? Put it into application. These are teaching devices. And James employs it here. He starts with a theme, he ends with that theme, and he fills the middle with teaching and instruction to help us with our infirmities. Okay? This morning I want to address, though, in particular, this, this knowing, that is, this command, or this, this revelation, this This fact that James brings out, he says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Beloved, the first thing I want to address as as I begin to just sort of unfold this idea of knowledge, understanding, even Christian education, whatever is a way for you to, to grasp what I'm saying here. That is, that in the Christian community, there must be Christian truth. Right? We don't adopt pagan ideas and philosophies into the Christian church and practice them and still call it Christian. It ceases to be Christian when we do that. We cease as professing believers to live as Christians when we adopt or implore or synchronize ourselves with pagan ideas or even atheistic ideas. James is concerned with that and he brings out this this truth that we ought to know certain things if we're going to benefit from these trials, these agitations, and these hardships of life. We have to know something. We have to put our minds to in the gear. We can't be passive. We can't be stoic. We don't just bear passively the trial until it ceases and then move on with our business. We must engage actively that trial in the grace and wisdom of God. For a purpose. That purpose is for maturity and completeness. Christ-likeness, as we'll see. The first thing that I want to bring to your attention and the things that we should know and understand that that I think James seems to just uh, imply is that as Christians, we should understand and know that grace begets grace. Grace begets grace. Notice what he says, knowing that the testing of your faith, the proving of your faith, produces patience. Now what is faith? Faith is a grace. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is... Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 tells us that faith is, this, this saving faith is a gift from our Heavenly Father for us to practice and to put into to reality in our lives. It's a grace that is in us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5. These graces come from the presence of God in our lives. The presence of the Holy Spirit. We ought to activate, realize, bring into reality our faith by doing what? Professing it. Making a profession of faith. 
professing to believe and trust in Jesus Christ, professing to know Him, professing to love Him, professing a desire to walk in His ways, professing a desire to love God's people and all of their warts and weaknesses, professing a need and and desire for the means of grace. I want to ask you something, brothers and sisters. I just wonder what it would be like in this country. After worship today, there's a political declaration that Christian worship is illegal. You can't gather and worship God. Any minister that gathers... Any people together are going to be thrown into prison. And if you're caught gathering under, the, under a minister, you will be thrown into prison. All Bibles are publicly condemned. Would it matter? Would you feel broken inside? Would you weep? You say, well, there's just been some stuff taken off my plate. My Sundays have been freed up. I can now really exercise the real desires of my heart to be what I want to be, to do what I want to do. Grace begets grace. The testing of this faith, this true faith, brothers and sisters, produces endurance. That's the result. See, it's the opposite of what James teaches us down in the passage itself. Look there with me. Notice in verse uh, what 13. Oh, look at verse 15. Let's just cut right to the chase. Um, then when desire, this sinful desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. You see the same principle there applies to sin. Sin begets sin. What's the, what's the result of grace begetting grace? Look there with me at verse 3 or verse 4. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Look there with me at verse 12. He has been proved he will receive what? The crown of life. What's the result of, gate, of grace begetting grace? A perfect life, a mature life, someone who's able to handle life as God brings it into their reality and their framework of experience, right? And what's the ultimate result from that? The proving of one's faith that he might receive the crown of life. But what's 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 the correlation? Grace begets grace. Sin begets death. Sin begets sin. Evil desires beget sin. Evil desires bring forth sin. Sin brings forth death. James is helping us with this wisdom, right? And understanding how we ought to see this life. How we ought to understand. Brothers and sisters, look at your life and ask you, is grace begetting grace? Has the trials and hardships and agitations in my life produced a greater love for God? Has it produced a greater desire for the Word of God? Has it produced a humble servant? Or has it produced someone... that loves himself more now than ever before. Someone who loves the idea that they show up at worship and they're the, you know, God's there for them. Someone who sees opportunity to do what? Express anger, hatred. Not righteous anger. James even goes on to address this anger and he says, Do you not know that the right that anger, that man's anger does not produce the righteousness of God? The 
that we have found in this experience of these hardships and agitations an opportunity to be evil. Brothers and sisters, grace begets grace. Please know that. Ask yourselves, is there an increase of grace in your life? If not, be Job. Go to the Lord and say, these things are far too wonderful for me. But you were my teacher. I know that. And you shall instruct me. You shall teach me. You shall lead me in the path I shall go. And I'll repent of my sins. So Job tried to justify himself. did not accept it. God did not accept his justification. Job tried to justify himself. And God wasn't pleased with it. Nor is he pleased when we try to justify sinfulness in our lives. Because of some circumstance that are at, that's out of our control, we try to justify our own evil cravings. Secondly, these present agitations and hardships in this life, brothers and sisters, are temporal. They're not permanent. They're, that is, in this life, notice this language that James uses, even in the very beginning, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That, that's something that happens. It can happen seasonally. There may be times when you go from trial to trial to trial to trial. And some very difficult trials. But they're not permanent. They're not constant. There, there's, there are moments when God gives you the grace to breathe deeply and to know that He's with you. Look at also um, oh, the whole aspect of, of the, the rich man... Um, Notice in verse 11, For no sooner has the sun risen in this burning heat than it withers the grass, the flower falls, its beautiful appearance perishes, so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. This idea, let's just say that there is an ongoing, lifelong hardship. This life is so short compared to eternity. That the hardships and difficulties in this life, brothers and sisters, are but temporary and momentary compared to eternity and glory. This life for the rich man is like the rest of us, right? The flower blooms. It springs up in the yard. It blooms. But it's only for a short time. And it's gone. Know this. Know this. Brothers and sisters, these are these convictions that we need to have if we are going to persevere in a faithful way under these trials and hardships of God. Know that this life... Let's, let's turn to another passage of Scripture. Um, 2 Corinthians 4. Paul was a man that understood hardship. He was someone who was mocked and maligned. He was lied about. He was ridiculed. He was persecuted. He was stoned. He, he, he suffered greatly from the hands of his own countrymen and others. And look at verse 13. 
Now notice this counsel Paul gives. He says, but having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believe, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for our sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. Now, let me tell you what he means by that. What Paul says is, listen, as we suffer faithfully at the hand of all these trials that come from our God, as we do it by the grace that He gives to us to do it with, guess what's going to happen? The gospel's going to spread. We're going to be the lights of the world. We're going to be the educators, if you will. We're going to teach people what it means to suffer faithfully and suffer joyfully. Look at the rest of the passage. Verse 16 says, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Lose heart when? In these afflictions. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary light affliction is, produce, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Here's what Paul is saying. Listen. Look at the effort and the energy that you expend preserving this decaying body, pampering it, justifying it, and it's passing away. You're not getting any younger. And I don't mean pointing at this side. None of you are getting any younger. You are passing away. This flesh is weakening. I don't care how much you work out, and it's good. But your days are numbered. And this body We'll see the grave. But know this. Have this conviction that what God is doing is but, and Paul, I love what Paul said, momentary light. It wasn't nothing light about what Paul suffered. Nothing light about it. But notice what Paul, how Paul sees it. He says, this momentary light affliction does not compare to the weight of glory that belongs to us in Christ in eternity. Doesn't compare. That's why Jesus said, hey, blessed are those who are persecuted and found faithful, but blessed are you when you're persecuted for my name's sake and found faithful. You have a greater blessing. Another conviction we need to have, brothers and sisters, that we see in James is that the goal of this grace is Christ-likeness. Turn back with me to James and look at that with me. When James speaks of this maturity, when he speaks of this completeness, he's talking about this Christ-likeness. Suffering faithfully under the providence of God, making sure that you don't abandon the means of grace. I mean, one thing that Christ never did and the hardships that He faced and encountered was abandon the means of grace. He was always found praying. He was found in the worship of God. He was going to the synagogues. He made His way to the temple. He made His way to those places where He needed to be. He wanted to commune with God. He wanted to demonstrate that He loved God, that He was going about doing the Father's business as the Father had dictated and told Him to do it. And we find him full, a man full of grace and truth, a man full of grace, a man full of the practice of grace, taking and making use of prayer, the scriptures, making use of the fellowship, of making use of all of the things that God had granted to him to persevere in this life. Look at Romans 15. Well, look back at James. I'm sorry, I brought you to James. I want you to see this. Notice the goal here in verse 3. 
He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is that Christ likeness. This is what you do actively, not passively. Passively is stoicism. When you just let the trial roll over you and you're just going to hold on and not be consumed by it, that's stoicism, that's paganism, that's, that's worldly philosophy. The Christian is to engage God in the midst of the trial, ask for wisdom, pray for strength, and bless God in worship. Coming to worship and offering thanksgiving to God. When do you offer thanksgiving? When you feel like it? When things are good? No, we're commanded. How many times have I read Psalm 100 in the opening of our worship? Come with thanksgiving. Come with praise. That's in any situation or circumstance. In any. Come to bless His name. Come to acknowledge His greatness, His power. Lord, You not only have the power to bring this providence into my life, but You have the power to hold on to me in that providence. You have the power to instruct me. You have the power to mold and shape my emotions and my feelings. You have the power to shape my understanding and knowledge. Like Job said, now I, I knew, but now I see. Now I understand. You have the power to bring light to this dark head. To this dull heart, you have the power to penetrate my infirmities and weaknesses and bring me along in grace. Y'all can tell you some brothers and sisters, we're all riddled with weaknesses and infirmities, aren't we? But you're not. You are not so weak and so infirm that God can't bring you along. And you must acknowledge God's great power when you come and worship and thank Him for His power because He brings you along even with these infirmities and weaknesses. Bringing you along, maturing you, showing you the way every step of the way. And that's why sanctification can be so painful. Every little baby step showing us how important prayer is, how important praise is, how important the Word of God is, how important knowing the Word of God is. Romans 15. Romans 15. Paul's talking about strong believers and weak believers and how they ought to uh, coexist together and how they ought to love one another. Verse 15, but notice what he goes on to say in the chapter. He says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Think about knowledge. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I'm going to stop there. If maturity and completeness is to have Christ's likeness, notice, brothers and sisters, when we throw our hands up in the middle of an agitation and hardship and say, you know what, I'm done for now, you don't realize the effect you have on your brothers and sisters. What if Christ threw his hands up and said, this is just, you know, number one, you don't even appreciate it. Number two, it's hard. Now, those are two things that we really like, right? We want to be appreciated, and we don't like hardships. And yet, if we're going to be like Christ, we've got to learn to think about others. Think about the weak brethren in your midst. Fathers, think about your children. Mothers, think about your children. Pastor, think about your congregation, right? How you respond to these difficulties can build up or tear down the people under your charge and care. 
Christ sought to persevere and endure in faithfulness in order to build up those he had been given who were weak and infirmed. Look at verse 5. And now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we talk about glorifying God. We're talking about obedience. We're talking about loving God. But brothers and sisters, if you do not have the conviction that maturity is Christ-likeness and Christ-likeness is that you think of others before yourself and the needs of the body, the needs that are going on around you, you're not acting like Christ. You're not acting like Christ. The hardship does not justify not being like Christ. It gives you, listen, listen, the hardship produces an environment for you to act like Christ and to follow His teaching and example so that what? Ultimately, who's glorified? God is glorified. The body is built up. And you go back to James and what do we see? The means of grace are being made effectual. Let's go back there to James. Notice. Verse 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. God is there. God is right there ready to meet your needs. This is a conviction. What if it's not a conviction? What if it's not a conviction? Then you're double-minded. <laughs> and guess what? God ain't going to give you anything. You're double-minded, and you say, well, what does that mean, Pastor? What, what, is that bad? Well, yes, it is bad, because you're, um, you'll be unstable. Let he, verse 6, but he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind, for that man ought not to expect he will receive anything from the Lord. God is there and prepared to meet your needs when you ask. The text says that he gives liberally. Liberally. More than you can ask, he'll give it to you. But see, this is a conviction. Here's the conviction that in the midst of this hardship and trial, I'm going to go to God. I want to glorify Him. I want to be made like Christ. I'm going to pray for wisdom. I'm going to pray, Lord, how does my faith need to respond here? What does endurance look like in this circumstance, in this situation? I'll ask for wisdom. He'll give it. And I'll understand. I'm not going to be like the poor man who lets his poverty overwhelm him from glorifying God. I'm not going to be like the rich man who lets his riches keep him from glorifying God. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to be deceived. I'm going to go and ask God for wisdom. You see, brothers and sisters, I made this note in my I made this note in my notes when I talked about God-given wisdom and I quoted the hymn we sang this morning, He makes the sightless eyes to see. He opens our eyes. He helps us understand. Brothers and sisters, let's consider these convictions. Grace begets grace. The present hardships that you now suffer are not comparable to the eternal glory waiting for you on the other side. Not comparable. The goal of grace is Christ-likeness. Now listen to me. If you're not working toward Christ-likeness, you have no grace. You understand that? Because the goal of grace, the goal of the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is to make you like Christ. 
And it's God who stands ready to grant you all that you need to understand and walk faithfully in that trial. To persevere with hope and encouragement. Now, brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a major, major hindrance. And I'm only going to mention this because we're out of time this morning. The major hindrance to succeeding in what I've just explained to you is ignorance and error. Ignorance. Ignorance and error. What is ignorance? Ignorance is the lack of knowledge. Ignorance is just not knowing. Ignorance is not having a clue of what to think. That's ignorance. Now you can, you can, you can fix that, right? Be dedicated to your Christian education. Be, credit, be dedicated and desired, desire to know Christian truth. Okay? Second is error. Now, error is the misapplication of truth. Okay? Well, I know God's in control of everything, but He's the cause of my sin. That's error. That's error. It's, it's ignorant to think that you could go to God and ask for something and not believe God would answer the prayer. That's ignorance. That's ignorance. When you go to God and you ask your Heavenly Father who gave His Son for you, who had His Son shed His blood so that you might live with Him eternally, the one who did all of that is not going to answer a prayer? When that prayer centers around you enduring and having hope and grace begotting grace so that you might be proved. Notice what he says in verse 16. That of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You know what James is saying? James is saying the same thing Paul said over there in Romans. He's saying, listen, when people see you, they're going to see God's grace. They're going to see God's power. Not in you, but from you, out of you. They're going to see God's hand on your life. They're going to see a joy. They're going to, listen, the world cannot comprehend what a believer, how a believer can consider it all joy as they fall into various trials. The world can't comprehend it. You know why? They don't have faith. But the believer can comprehend it and understand it. And guess what? His soul, the believer's soul is fed on that knowledge and truth. I had a pretty tremendous quote to read. It's long. I'm not going to read it for the sake of time. But it's about the believer being the only one who can make sense of the hardship. And how the world just fails miserably when it comes to truly understanding and partaking and benefiting from difficulty. Only the believer can do that in Christ. And for that, brothers and sisters, take encouragement. James deals with this ignorance when he talks about doubting. He deals with this ignorance when he talks about letting this trial have its way. Don't subvert it. Don't try to... Don't try to do anything. Let it have its way. God is proving your character. He's bringing about in your life these graces. Don't blame God. Don't find yourself using phrases and terms and words that blame God. Well, I could, I could be this if that. Don't blame God. Learn to praise God. Learn to thank God. Learn to bless God's name with the difficulties you go through. And the only way to do it, brothers and sisters, is to see God's truth, God's power, God's glory, God's goal, which is to make us perfect and complete in Christ. Christ Christlikeness. Let's pray.